Blog Talk Radio. And I everyone and thank you for tuning in to Help for HD Live. Help for HD Live is brought to you by Help for HD International and is made possible by our sponsors Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation. I am your host Katie Jackson and today our guest is Peter Ding, doctoral candidate in the pharmacology and toxicology program at UC Davis. Currently he is being mentored by Dr. Dan Nolta, Kyle Fink, and David Siegel at the UC Davis Institute of Regenerative Cures. His research is centered on the production and evaluation of a novel DNA-binding therapy for rare genetic diseases such as Huntington's disease. He has previously been a recipient, let me make sure I did say this right, he was of the National Institute of Health, I got that one right, but also Mm -hmm. the the Enos McMillan Fellowship in Pharmacology. Uh, He is a new member of the Huntington Study Group um, which I got to see him a couple weeks ago in Colorado, which was fun, and selected for Hot Topics in Neuroscience at the Society of Neuroscience. A native to California, Peter is highly interested in producing impactful research as well as bridging the gap between science and the public through the science communication. I'm super excited to have you on the show today, Peter, and I will let you start by telling us a little bit of background on yourself and how you became involved in Huntington's disease. Sure. Uh, Thanks a lot for inviting me over, Katie. I'm very excited to be a part of this show today. So I am a doctoral candidate over at UC Davis, and I originally got my start in the Huntington's field. Actually, after I got done with college, I worked as a technician for one year with Dr. David Siegel, and he was developing these novel therapeutics where we could actually design proteins that could control whether or not a gene would get expressed. And this was, I actually got my start in the autism space, but when Dr. Kyle Fink first started at UC Davis as a postdoctoral scholar, I actually was the one training him on the development of some of these tools. And he was invo- involved with the Huntington's disease space. And uh, since then, we developed these tools together, and it looked really promising. And as I applied and got into graduate school at UC Davis, I made it a, a, a pointed effort on my part to stay a part of this project and stay a part of Huntington's disease. Yeah, we are glad you did. Um, can you explain to us about the research that is being done on JHD and HD in Dr. Nolta's lab by you and your team? Sure. So there are a couple different paradigms of how we're trying to um, go after Huntington's disease uh, at the Institute for Regenerative Cures. The more well-known project has been the Jan Nolta's mesenchymal stem cell approach. And what she did there was she actually has these adult stem cells that we can derive from bone marrow. 
and we've reprogrammed them so that they can do a couple extra things. So these stem cells already are pretty therapeutic in nature. They're super helpful, like to go to cells that are hurt and release all kinds of goodies that can keep that cell alive. But in the context of Huntington's disease, these stem cells have been programmed to release, we call it brain-derived neurotrophic factor. You can think of it as sort of brain fertilizer. And what it does, it's uh, neuroprotective. So it can go to a cell that's not in great shape and actually keep that cell alive. So that's the stem cell approach that uh, Dr. Nolta has pursued for a number of years. And when Dr. Kyle Fink and I first started on Huntington's disease together, we actually um, moved a little bit from that paradigm. And so I guess to answer this question, there needs to be a little bit of background. So we've known the causative mutation for Huntington's disease for 24 years now, since 1993. And it's really since uh, around 2009 onwards where there's been the development of new technology that we can actually select it. We, we can use this mutation to try to develop a potential therapeutic for it. And what we do is we develop these special proteins that we can tell bind to any region of the DNA. And in this case, we tell it to go to the actual mutation that causes Huntington's disease. And we can actually affect how the expression of this mutation functions. So what we do is we actually can put a off switch onto the Huntington's disease mutation. And we, what we're trying to do is turn off the gene by directly targeting the DNA. And by turning off this gene, we don't have the development of the mutant Huntington protein, which we know is to be very the causative of a lot of the downstream devastating effects of Huntington's disease, like the neuronal cell loss that leads into the chorea, cognitive impairments, uh, psychologic disturbances, and so forth. So we're going, really going after mm-hmm. the, the root cause of the disease. Yeah, and I think, like, this is really important to ask because I think this is obviously lost a lot of the time. I know when Dr. Nolta came out was talking about her mesochymal stem cell um, research, everyone thought, it's secure, it's secure, it's secure, and she had to mm-hmm. really explain to us, this is a therapy. So now the research you just described, is that a, tr- a treatment, a therapy, or is it like a cure? So the mesenchymal stem cell approach was really sort of, okay, let's maintain the remaining cells that we have, um, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of what, what's already happened. And this approach is, is very similar in that regard, except rather, we know that there is the loss of um, medium spiny neurons in Huntington's disease, and that can lead to several downstream issues, particularly the, the chorea. Um, in this case, we're really interested in actually shutting down the protein. So I wouldn't call it so much uh, a actual cure for the disease in that the mutation is actually still going to be present. But what we're trying to do is act, act as a stopgap so we don't actually produce that new protein anymore. So we go a little bit further. So rather than solely preserving the cell that's there, we're going after the protein, turning off that protein, and we're turning off all the downstream effects of that protein. So in Huntington's disease, it's not just the loss of neurons that leads to the cause of the disease, but there's a whole host of other things that are occurring. So these cells aren't only just dying, but they're misbehaving in lots of different ways. And by actually turning off the protein, we're hoping to actually attenuate some of those misbehaving cells on top of saving the cells that are there. So it's really important that to kind of think that whenever we could intervene with this sort of 
uh, stop repression approach, it, the hope would be that it would preserve what is, what is still there for the patients. Right. And so um, this is a, a really hard question. Uh, what phase is the research in, and can you explain the process at how it works to get a treatment to bench side? Mm-hmm. Um, to, to bedside. To, um, from, from, so th- that's actually a, a major component of my graduate program is um, everything oh, did, we did do. I say, is, yeah, I meant from bench to bedside. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Peter. No, uh, uh, my, my, my training fellowship was actually referred to as um, it was a pharmacology fellowship um, from bench to bedside and how we can best uh, move mm-hmm. therapies that we come up with um, in, in lab and really reach a end user as in patients uh, in, in the long run. And really that's the main goal of the Institute of Regenerative Cures, uh, the translational center side um, with Dr. Nolta and Dr. Fink. So um, a li- just sort of some fast information on, on what it, the sort of average numbers that, that come into play when we think of something that comes into bedside. So on average, if you have a promising therapeutic um, that you want to get to market, it takes anywhere between 10 to 16 years from the point of conception to finishing phase three clinical trials and getting rolled out to patients uh, with hordes of resources in terms of monetary amount, manpower, and all of that, um, um, all the other involved aspects. So our approach currently is, is still what we consider in the preclinical phase. So if we think of, if we break down what I just described at 10 to 16 year mark, uh, in two phases where it is a preclinical phase and the clinical phase. The clinical phase is when we're enrolling patients uh, from with increasing number as we go from phase one to phase three. And we ascertain safety and efficacy in patients. Uh, in the preclinical phase, this is where you read in the newspapers all the time where scientists have solved or cured diseases in, in cells or cured a disease in a mouse, or cured a disease in some other animal model. So the preclinical phase is really broken up by sort of what we call in vitro, so that's going into cells in a dish, and in vivo models of disease, so animal models of disease such as mice. And so we're currently uh, in the in vivo phase where we're evaluating our putative therapeutic in a number of mouse models of Huntington's disease. And right now we're um, generating some really interesting data that we're hoping that we can actually publish uh, by the end of the year, beginning of next year, on the therapeutic and delivery methods for the therapeutic that we're developing. That is that's exciting, and and I think some really exciting news too that just came out of UC Davis is I think I heard that you guys are now an alpha clinic. Is that what our beca- yes. you guys are going to become an alpha clinic, which is super yes. exciting. Um, yeah, I remember when um, the California Institute of, Institute of Regenerative Medicine came out with this alpha clinic kind of idea, and I was actually at the meeting when they did. And um, this is really exciting, you guys, because the Institute of Regenerative Medicine, uh, CIRM, California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, has decided to choose these different spots to be alpha clinics. And this is really, and I'm sure Peter can totally correct me if I do this wrong, because I actually just 
learned about it in a presentation when I was at a meeting, but it's kind of where research can start like in a petri dish, a scope, and some amazing cells, and literally go all the way into human trial, go through all phases of human trial, go through all phases of regulatory, the whole thing, into market. So it's kind of like this one-stop shop. Is that kind of what an alpha clinic is? That's what I got from the so, meeting I went to. So, yes, we, uh, UC Davis recently uh, received uh, $8 million from the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine to become an alpha clinic. Um, which is fantastic because it basically makes UC Davis a facility that can run stem cell trials uh, through our area, which is fantastic for Northern California. And what the Alpha Clinic essentially is, is it, it's, it's funds to basically create the infrastructure um, in both buildings and having the manpower administrative staff to run clinical trials through UC Davis. And so there's a lot of flexibility with something like this in-house where, you know, if you, if, if you come over with some cell therapy in another university, you have to find um, somewhere where you can run this through. But we don't have that issue where at UC Davis, we actually have this clinic, sort of like you described, this one-stop shop. So we're very excited about having that here. And we're very thankful for uh, to CIRM for choosing us out of several fantastic candidates to actually give this Alpha Clinic um, this grant to. Yeah. I was actually at UC Davis with um, a couple advocates and, and some people from CIRM, and we were looking um, at just the layout, and for our listeners, I, I know that you can actually go online and look at the UC Davis website, but um, you have, like, the Institute of Regenerative Cures, and then you have, you know, the Ellison. You kind of have this beautiful setup, the way UC Davis is set up, that literally everything is walking distance, even to the MRIs and research clinics and stuff. So it's kind of cool how that was kind of already set up like that, you know. Um, so it'll be really interesting, and I'm excited to hear that UC Davis got it. That was something we've uh, been waiting for for a long time. I remember it's been a couple of years since CIRM even had this idea of these alpha clinics, so I'm glad they're being funded. Yeah, I, I totally. I think some of the big things that was attractive about UC Davis is that we have so many fantastic clinicians and researchers working together, and it's really a fantastic environment to really foster the development of these therapeutics moving forward. And, I mean, we, we have Jan yeah. who's an expert in the stem cell field, and it just seemed like a match made in heaven for for uh, for the fact that we were able to get this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how promising is this research that you are doing, and do you think that it has the potential to reach bedside? <clears throat> uh, if So if I can just summarize my thoughts in a word, yes. I really hope that it, it, it will it can really be something that can impact the Huntington's disease field and reach uh, bedside. Um, and so I, everything that we've developed in terms of this approach uh, was built off fantastic science by hundreds of researchers before us. And I think that the current paradigm in the, in the research community for HD in terms of developing a therapeutic is lowering mutant Huntington in whatever way possible. And so I actually want to touch a little bit upon um, what we described earlier about um, how far something like this is from, from clinic. And everything that is passed through the FDA in the U.S., and, and I'm sure in many other countries, is there, there, there's a question of precedence. Has something like this been done before? 
And in terms of these lowering, let's let's use specifically lowering Huntington as an example. Uh, we, as you know, we recently came back from the Huntington Study Group in Denver, Colorado, and there was a fantastic innovators panel where they had five different groups in preclinical and clinical phases for Huntington's disease present their work. And all these approaches were lowering Huntington in some way. So they're using a slightly different approach from us, but fundamentally what it is is lowering mutant Huntington. And I think that for a lot of us, a lot of researchers, this seemed like, wow, this is such, this is, we think this is the best step moving forward rather than worry about antioxidants or some more downstream aspects of the disease, but really lowering Huntington from what we've seen across many of the animal models and cell models for this disease has a benefit. That being said, you know, the difference from an animal to a person, it's, it's quite a leap. But I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of excitement in our community that this could really be something that, that can help the patient. And regardless of its our approach where we're using a, a protein that turns off the gene or the other approaches through Ionis or Wave Pharmaceuticals where they're using an actual molecule that interferes with the Huntington RNA, so sort of the, mm-hmm. the messenger that ultimately becomes a protein. We're all working towards a very, we're all working with this very similar model and similar idea. And I think there's a lot of excitement in our community that one of these approaches will land and can result in an actual benefit for the patient. Yeah. And so I'm going to kind of just ask, and you may want to explain to our listeners what this means, but I'm going to ask you, but is, are we like even close to going into like an IND on something like this? You can explain what an IND is. You'd explain it better than I would, but. For for our approach or for uh, many of the other approaches in the field currently? No, your approach definitely. And I know I know oh, I yeah, Nolta we we got clear to pre IND um you know, through the mesenchymal stem cell, but with your guys' approach, mm-hmm. how far off do you think you guys are from being able to just even go in for the first rounds of maybe putting in an IND mm-hmm. request from the FDA? Mm-hmm. So an IND is an investigative new drug. Um, uh, basically, if, if you have promising data with a strong safety profile um, for a specific disease, you can approach the FDA about receiving this uh, IND uh, classification. And with that, you're able to start pursuing partners to move forward and go into uh, actual clinical trial and, and, and enroll uh, human patients. So for our work, we're still very much in the preclinical phase, but the, okay. the work that we've been able to generate from uh, conception of when I was a technician to now as a fourth-year graduate student, really the, 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 the nearest future goal of what Dr. Kyle Fink and I are trying to do is really reach this pre-IND enabling phase where we go into larger co- cohorts of animals and really validate our therapeutic in that, okay, can we recapture this effect in these animals with lots of them? It, it's it really confirming that it's not just a noise that we're seeing. And from there, mm-hmm. then validating the therapeutic in a larger animal model. And so this is sort of the... Um, the sort of the the recipe book of moving something and you got to test something out in these smaller animal models like a mouse and then you got to test something out Mm -hmm. in a larger animal model um to really validate safety 
And then when you have all that, then you can start really preparing your uh, IND packet to go to the FDA. And, and that's why it's really right. important to um, talk about precedence when we talk uh, when we discuss these these therapeutics. If you have something, if there's something that you're doing that isn't necessarily reinventing a wheel, like let's say you have a new new type of painkiller like a Tylenol derivative, you can skip out a lot of those steps and go into enrolling patients because the safety profile has been been well evaluated. Mm-hmm. And so the approach sure. that we're doing is still pretty pretty novel, but something that was really exciting that came out actually last, I think, Friday or Saturday was from Sangamo, um, a pharma company from Richmond, California. And they're using very similar technology in that they have these, these we call them zinc fingers, but again, it's just a DNA binding protein that can bind onto a gene and, and change its expression. But they actually injected their first patient um, for a rare disease and referred to as Hunter syndrome. And this is very exciting for us in the field right now in that this is one of the first examples of these DNA binding proteins, these DNA editing proteins going into a person. And we're really excited to see how this plays out because whatever Sangamo puts through, along with many of the other companies using the CRISPR-Cas9 technology, um, mm-hmm. what, what they do in these patients and the safety profiles and sort of the model that they produce will really be the roadmap that we can use to move our therapeutic forward as well, is what we hope for. Sure, yeah, that's that's great. And I know, you know, I think that we as patients get frustrated just because we want it now, right? And I'm sure you totally. as scientists yeah. get frustrated because you guys see these kind of very, very amazing novel approaches and uh, why can't we do this right now? And, um, but I do, I do um, get very frustrated. One person who's been really great for me is, is Dr. Nolta and Dr. Wheelock because I'll go on, you know, a complete crazy, we need this now. And they really do, you know, they respect the FDA and we all should because it is really important that these therapies really do show safety, tolerability, and efficacy all the way through even the preclinical stages of this new novel possible therapy, right? So I think that I think that people I think we get really really frustrated, um, but I think that this process is important. Um, so in saying that, I wish that there was something we could do to expedite it, which we tried a couple years ago when we all went to Washington, D.C. and met with the FDA at the Padufa meeting. Um, That was a great meeting. We got to meet Billy Dunn and and everyone that's kind of in charge of decision-making for us over there um, as far as Cedar and Steeper is concerned. Um, You know, we basically pleaded to them that we need things expedited, um, you know, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a while to see if, if any change was made. Um, I think that we actually saw that change wasn't made, so we went back and we actually started a letter-writing campaign to even take it further. Because <laughs> anyone who mm-hmm. me, I can't stop there, I have to even take it further. Um, so I really hope that, that, that we made an impression on the FDA um, through the PDUFA meeting as well as through our letter-writing campaigns. And I think we do because the FDA has been writing us back. And mm-hmm. they are, um, you know, they do understand the desperate need for new, ther- new treatments um, as well as therapies for the Huntington's disease community. I'm not sure if you've seen anything on your side of that because you are still in more of the preclin, uh, more in the, you know, very, very early stages. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this it's it's been a developing field. Uh, most graduate students don't really get exposed to a lot of the patient advocacy or the um, FDA talks that that I've actually been observing um, through my my career. So it's it's I, I would consider myself as having a very non-traditional training. Uh, and I'm not saying that in a bad way whatsoever. It, it's really been fantastic meeting with the patient advocates and learning a little bit more about what the, the FDA wants. And so I I, I can't I, – I, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I, I'm going to have to be have to answer this with almost a non-answer in that I don't 100% know um, yeah. what impact this has had with the FDA other than that the – FDA has been is sensitive to what patient advocates have to say, and the fact that they're having these meetings and and being responsive, I think, is um, is demonstrative of that. Though ultimately, the the goal of the agency is is safety. However, mm-hmm. what yep. I was mentioning earlier is that precedence also plays an important role, and I think that as more research comes out for these more these other DNA editing technologies as, as they're a little bit more down the way than where we are, that it can really pave the way of how we can best move this forward into a therapeutic. And it's not mm-hmm. us. Um, Wave Therapeutics and Ionis, their technologies are very, very uh, promising. And we, and I, mm-hmm. I believe that's actually yeah. one of the things that the Huntington Study Group that uh, Blair Levitt lauded just this year alone we've been able to, there was Ostato, so a new version of tetrabenazine to treat some of the chorea. Mm-hmm. But there mm-hmm. are a handful of different companies right now trying to get these new Huntington lowering technologies into market in mm-hmm. Canada and in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. On top of that, there are new therapeutics now trying to treat some of the cognitive issues uh, as a van's approach to try to reduce the ir- irritability symptoms in HD. Mm-hmm as in phase two, phase three trials right now. So mm-hmm. I think as the landscape really starts developing more over the next few years, really excited that something will be available to the patients soon. Now, mm-hmm. saying, yes. and, you know, soon, maybe not around the corner, but I think it was one of the things that Blair Levitt talked about during one of the keynote talks during Huntington Study Group is that, in the last 15, 20 years, we've developed a couple therapeutics to try to treat the symptomology of the disease. But he was very hopeful, and I think everyone else at Huntington Study Group, researchers, patient advocates, and clinicians alike, very hopeful that we'll have a therapeutic that can actually affect the trajectory of the disease, whether it's our approach or Ionis's approach or Wave's approach or Teva's approach or really anyone's approach that can change the trajectory of the disease in the next five, ten years to be available yeah. to patients. Yeah, That's I, what we're really hoping for. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I wasn't able to actually go to any of the sessions during HSG because I was in meetings from like eight o'clock till eight in the morning till eight o'clock at night. Actually, ten o'clock at night. But Blair and I were able mm-hmm. to sit down, which was nice, and have um have a little one-on-one time. Um, I actually mm-hmm. uh, sat with him and Charles Sabine, and um, we got to kind of sit and chat and I think that it's really exciting what's going on uh, with Ionis and I think everyone's watching with excitement and um, I hope that we see it come to the U.S. soon and um, and so yeah no I, I think that there's definitely and I'm just so excited that there's so much of this going on right because when I started advocating for HD 12 13 years ago we had like CoQ10 enzyme and we had creatine 
and we had, you know, we had that, you know, that, that's what we were looking at, which, mm-hmm. which was really exciting for us at the time, right? But now we're looking at, like, gene editing, and we're looking at what Ionis' approaches. I got to fly to Boston and go into the Waves mm-hmm. uh, laboratory, their labs, and it was amazing what I got to see uh, back there. And so I really think that this is a great time, um, and I'm hoping that we will see a therapy um, for Huntington's disease but my real hope, I mean, my, my, that, is, that is my hope, but a very, very strong passion of mine is I really, really hope in my lifetime that um, I see something for JHD. I really do. Um, you know, obviously mm-hmm. we know that they could go together. We know that. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, pediatrics and uh, going into pediatrics and regulatory is never fun. And going into pediatrics mm-hmm. in general is just, it's heart-wrenching. And these children, the pain and suffering they're enduring is just, more than any child should ever have to endure, as we all know. And it just, we need to keep fighting for them because they need therapies. And I just wish we could get these kids, and I've talked to the FDA about it. I've had meetings with um, a couple a couple people over at the FDA about uh, juvenile Huntington's and the importance of these children being able to be involved in these clinical trials. Um, and hopefully that's something we can fight for and we can change. But um, But I think it is, so so great that you guys have a focus on JHD and I just adore you and Kyle for um, and Jan for really um, really looking at JHD because it's really important to our community and and we thank you for it. <laughs> yeah, I I I really I, I was um, sorry. I, I'm I'm thinking a little bit about uh, at the Help for HD Tampa Education Day. I, I got to meet some of the. I, I got I got to meet many more of the families who were affected by HD, particularly those who were affected by JHD. Stacy Sargent, mm-hmm. in particular, um, mm-hmm. and really mm-hmm. getting to talk to her and hear her story is an incredibly motivating experience for what we as researchers want to do to move these therapeutics forward. And and, and I'm really glad you mentioned earlier, Katie. Many of the the, the Ionis trials and and our approach that there is these can be in theory, transition between JHD and HD because ultimately we know that it's the that that expansion that the formation of that protein that is the the causative agent for for the disease. So we're we really will continue working on JHD and trying to push these therapeutics so that we can affect both the adult and pediatric versions of the disease. Now we know it's just yeah it's just an awful disease and its impact on families. So we're working very hard, as hard as we can, to try to push the science forward in the right way, but also being cognizant of the frustration that patients have with therapeutics mm-hmm. coming into real, real therapeutics coming forward. And you know, right. I, I can't speak to how, because we get frustrated, like, oh man, we need to get this experiment done. We need to push this forward. We need to push this forward. But that can't even compared to, I'm sure, what the caretakers and patient advocates have to deal with. But all I can really yeah. ask is, is, as researchers is, is patience that we can do this the right way, move it forward, and in a safe and efficacious manner. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, and we're so thankful for all your guys' work. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago talking to Jan and Kyle, and they were going in on Christmas Eve to do surgeries because that's when lab space was available. You know what I mean? Or 
I mean, it's mm-hmm. unbelievable your guys' dedication and these these animal models. They need to be watched around the clock. And I remember one time Dan telling me, "There, you know, we work every day. You know, we're, you know, you sit at home and you may be frustrated and wonder who's out there helping us, but we want you to know that we do work every day on this. I mean, they were in labs on Christmas Eve doing doing um, surgeries when during the mesenchymal." stem cell, I was just blown away. I, I was at a meeting with them a couple weeks before, and they were telling me how they were going to be in the lab doing surgeries on Christmas Eve. I mean, that's a dedicated team of people who truly want to help um, our population, our, our community. So we are you'll thankful. Find that with, you'll, you'll find that that's not unique to just us. Um, yeah, I've, I've been in there with Kyle on a Christmas Eve uh the day after Christmas, New Year's Eve, Thanksgiving—it it doesn't doesn't really matter in in the grand spectrum. The impact of what we can try to do to help the community is more important, and that's not just unique to us uh, or at UC Davis. I think if you look at UBC, uh, University of British Columbia, the fantastic work that Blair Levin and Michael Hayden have done to advance the Huntington's mm-hmm. disease field—we mm-hmm. we follow their their paradigm to try to do impactful research to affect those in HD, or not even us, but Peg, um, Peg's group over in University of Iowa, uh, and their mm-hmm. work with JHD has been fantastic, and all the work that's been happening in University of South Florida. Really, it, it's it, the, the Huntington's disease research community as a whole is some of the most compassionate and hardest working individuals I've met in my time as a researcher. And mm-hmm. we're working to try to produce something impactful for the patients in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on today, Peter. I think we can wrap up the show and please tell everyone at UC Davis that I said, hello. I feel so, I, you know, I was in the lab all the time and I was coming over and I've been so busy and I feel like I haven't, I feel I miss everyone. I haven't seen Jan or Kyle forever. And I hear that like, is Jerry retired now? I think, or is Uh, is that a true statement? Um, so I would say there's more to it than meets the eye. I don't know if I can speak about okay. it right now. I, I you should come okay. by and you we don't can have talk to. about it offline. Yeah, I miss I miss her and um I miss her and I miss, miss everyone over there. I I just love everyone over there and um I become cl- so close to everyone and I feel like I've been totally MIA. So I will make my way in the next couple of weeks over to the lab to say hello and see how everything is going and maybe bring you some coffee to keep you guys refueled. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so make sure you say hello and tell everyone that we so appreciate all the work that they're doing and, um, and we know that they are working hard for all of us. To let everyone just know a couple of updates here, next week we will not have a radio show because of Thanksgiving. So for all of our U.S. listeners, have a wonderful Thanksgiving with your families um, and eat a lot of great food. If you are unable to buy a holiday meal this year for your family, please remember Help for HD International has a relief fund, and we are here to help you make that possible. You can go to our website, www.helpforhd.org, and you can look up those programs. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and they have those programs on there as well, mostly Instagram and Facebook. Um, this is a portal. This is free to families. If you're an HD and family in need, Help for HD International wants to make sure that we help with the holiday season. For all of our international 
listeners, you guys have a great week next week. We will be back on the 29th. Um, Outbreak DUI will be back live then. Um, also, we are celebrating right now National Family Caregiver Month. This is the month of November um, to show our appreciation to all our amazing caregivers out there. Help Rage International is giving you guys Starbucks coffee. I know that's not much, and we know your, your guys' guys's job is tireless and endless, um, but you do it for the love of your, of your family member, your loved one, and, uh, but we want to recognize you. So that is also in the portal available. All you have to do is go in, fill out a couple uh, questions for us so we can vet you as an HD family caregiver, and we will make sure that we send you a gift card so you guys can go get some warm coffee because I know all over the nation it is getting cold. So um, until uh, two weeks from now, everyone have a safe night.